Open your Bibles, if you would, or navigate on your device to the book of Judges. Judges in the Old Testament, we're looking at chapter 7, verses 9 through 15. You might want to silence your device if you don't want to be called out uh, and made fun of. Judges 9, uh, excuse me, 7, 9 through 15. The topic, God sends Gideon down to the enemy camp where he overhears two Midianites discussing a prophetic dream in which they are conquered by the Israelites. The title of our message, The Nightmare Before Conquest. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, we've had the privilege of joining our voices together in song. Our hearts lifted up, as it were, in a chorus of praise that you receive as our Father in heaven. Now we're looking at your word and we're asking for the ministry of your Holy Spirit who you promised you would send to teach us. Take these words written so many centuries ago and have them come alive in our hearing and in our hearts by your Spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. It was an odd headline, enough so that I clicked on the story, Nurse Accused of Murder by Bagel. An unlicensed nurse has been charged with murdering a multiple sclerosis patient by feeding her a piece of bagel and letting her choke to death so she could carry on an affair with the patient's husband. The nurse told detectives she fed Darlene Amberick a piece of bagel soaked in milk but never intended to kill her. If somebody gives you milk-soaked bagel, beware. Now, fascinated... I found other murders involving bagels. In 2007, a Long Island man gunned down the mother of his four children, confessed to police that he shot her over a pair of bagel shops that a court had recently awarded her in their bitter divorce. In 2008, a woman was convicted of voluntary manslaughter after what began as an argument with her boyfriend over a cold bagel. Patrice Rogers admitted to police that she stabbed Gino Crenshaw after the couple had an argument over a bagel he'd brought her. She didn't eat it because she said it was cold, which prompted him to become upset that she was ungrateful. She said he began hitting her from behind, so she stabbed him once with a backhanded motion with a kitchen knife, puncturing his heart. You might think of Dunkin' Donuts rather than bagels this morning. Now, something like a bagel plays a prominent and fatal role in our story. Gideon went down to the camp of the enemy, and then we read this. This is verses 13 and 14. When Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his uh, his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. We're going to see in subsequent studies that this prediction comes true. As Gideon and his 300-man unarmed army overcomes 135,000 enemy troops. Down in the enemy camp, Gideon discovered that God had a good work for him to perform. Gideon heard that God has foreordained the victory. All he needed to do was stand and watch the deliverance that the Lord had promised. Now, you've undoubtedly heard it said of the two testaments in the Bible that the new is in the old contained and the old is in the new explained. 
That being the case, we should look for New Testament precepts and principles to be illustrated in Old Testament stories. What we've just said about Gideon reminds us of a great promise to us in the New Testament. It's Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Gideon was God's workmanship. He was a work in progress made possible by the promise of the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. In the camp of the Midianites, Gideon discovered the good works God had prepared beforehand for him. Now that we know what we're looking for, we can apply this to ourselves as we consider the good works God has prepared for each of us. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God will strengthen you to perform the good works he has prepared for you. And number two, the good works God has prepared for you cannot fail if they're performed in his strength. Let's take a look, first of all, at the good works themselves. Now, all over town, there are yard signs announcing ongoing construction projects. Whether it's a roofing company in a residential neighborhood or a construction firm in a commercial zone, the contractor wants everyone to know that it's his crew at work. A Christian is the workmanship of the creator of the universe. In fact, the universe itself, in all of its microcosmic and macrocosmic splendor, it was only created in order to provide an environment within which God could create mankind. The current earth and stellar heavens will one day be consumed to be replaced by new ones. The men and women with whom God has been dealing since the Garden of Eden, that's what goes on forever. Now, God began his workmanship on us, and he has promised he will complete it. His goal is to transform us into the likeness of Jesus, to make you and I like Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said this, Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Apostle Paul said, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul also said that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we take that to mean not that certain men and women are predestined to be saved, while others are not, but to mean that once you are saved, you are destined, predestined to become like Jesus. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so you are like one of those yard signs in that God lets the world know he is at work through you. He is excited about what he's doing, and he wants everyone to know. Construction projects, especially big ones, follow plans that have been discussed and approved in advance. One of the things we are told about God's workmanship in our lives is that he has planned good works for us to discover and then to perform in his strength. And so if you're a Christian here today, God has good works for you to discover later today, tonight, tomorrow, for the rest of your life on earth, and then he wants to empower you to perform them. As one commentary put it, the purpose of these prepared in advance works is not to work in them, but to walk in them. You simply discover them and go along for the ride. In other words, God has prepared a path of good works for believers, which he will perform in and through them as they walk by faith. Any confusion about how this happens 
can be cleared up by looking at Gideon as an illustration of discovering the good works God has prepared in advance. It's a beautiful illustration. God knows what he's going to accomplish through Gideon. He says, Gideon, I want you to go down and you will hear about the good work I have before ordained for you to discover tomorrow when you go to battle. And and so it's really a precious insight that God gives us. Now, if you're not familiar with the story thus far, because we're picking up in the middle of the uh, you know, story of Gideon uh, in the book of Judges, it's a time in Israel's history when they are disobeying God, worshiping idols. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Every so often, God would raise up a judge. This is a person we would call a hero. The judge was empowered by God to deliver Israel from her enemies and hopefully restore worship of Jehovah. The Israelites have been oppressed and subjected by the Midianites and their allies for the last seven years. The angel of the Lord found Gideon hiding, but nevertheless called him a mighty man of valor. That's because he knew the good works he had in store for Gideon to discover and to perform in God's strength. And we've already seen some of those good works. Gideon had blown a trumpet, rallying 32,000 Israelites to join his army. God said they were too many in order for him to get the glory. So he whittled Gideon's army down to 300 men. It's hard to call them soldiers since they had no weapons, no armor, and no training. As we pick up the story, God was ready to execute his conquest over the Midianites, but Gideon wasn't quite ready, and so God is going to condescend to his weaknesses and give him a look at the future. And so verse 9, it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, For I have delivered it into your hand. I found it interesting. God starts with the finish. Go, I've already delivered the enemy into your hand. The victory is already won. There's no talk of how to go or how the victory is to be achieved. Just go, start out for the Midianite camp, trusting that all will be revealed in due time. In a future situation, facing a great enemy force, one of the Bible's true heroes, Jonathan, is described this way. We compare and contrast Gideon with Jonathan. Gideon is going to need to go down to the camp and get some reassurance. Jonathan just does this. He says in 1 Samuel, he says to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. Jonathan seemed to get it. Just go and see what the Lord will do. After all, it's his work, not yours. Remember when they were rivals running for uh, vice president and Dan Quayle said to Lloyd Benson that even though he lacked experience, he was like a young John Kennedy. It's one of my favorite debate moments of all time because Benson uttered a classic debate-ending comment when he said, Senator... I served with Jack Kennedy. You're no Jack Kennedy. And that was it. Dan Quayle was finished. Now, luckily, we won the election. But uh, as far as Dan Quayle, there's no way to recover from a blow like that. Gideon was no Jonathan. But what about me? Am I more like Jonathan or am I more like Gideon? What about you? Well, we, of course, want to be more like Jonathan. Whether we are or not, however, God has set before all of us good works to make us more like Jesus. Being a Gideon is no excuse. As Cher said to Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck, snap out of it. 
just deal with it. God is working in and through each of us all the time. See, we rate ourselves. We think, well, you know, Jonathan's way up there on the hero scale. Gideon is, he's bare minimum. And we would like to think that we're Jonathan's, but then when we fail, we think, well, I'm more like Gideon anyway. And God says, it doesn't matter. I'm doing a work for, uh, through Jonathan. There were good works for him to discover. He had less fear and he discovered them faster than Gideon. But Gideon, I have good works for you to discover as well. So wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, however mature or immature you feel you are or actually are, the Lord has good works for you to walk in beforehand and he will empower you to discover them and to walk in them. Verse 10, if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. God is so patient with Gideon. Reluctant and doubting, God worked with his young man rather than moving on to someone else who was more Jonathan-like. God's patience with Gideon is intended to reinforce that he who began a good work in us will complete it. For his part, Gideon made it harder for God, but God was committed to his workmanship. Obviously, I need to show godly patience toward you and you towards me. We can't simply overlook one another and move on to someone more mature. We're in this together, maturing at different rates of spiritual speed. I mean, Gideon is a guy you would never hire. If you read his resume and, and did a background check on Gideon, okay, so where were you found when you were called to be a mighty man of valor? Hiding, threshing grain, okay? How many fleeces did you put out before God, testing him and asking him to perform a miracle before you would believe him? How afraid are you to go down into the enemy camp that I told you that I have given you victory? Yeah, I think we'll pass on you. We're gonna keep your resume on file, not... We need a Jonathan for this. We need a Timothy. And yet God says, no, I've, you know, I'm, I'm content to work with Gideon. And quite honestly, he's content to work with you and I. He's started something that he's going to bring to a glorious completion. We can make it a little harder for him along the way by being like Gideon. Uh, it's no advantage to us, but God will continue to work with us. God suggests Gideon take Purah, his servant. This is the only mention of Purah here and in verse 11. God sends with Gideon a servant to encourage and accompany him. Purah might therefore be a type of God the Holy Spirit. He's described as a servant who encourages us by coming alongside of us to help us. That's, that's the Holy Spirit. He's our paraclete is the word, our helper that comes alongside. Whether we are meant to see the Holy Spirit or not, and I think we are, we know that in our case... The Holy Spirit permanently indwells us and he can constantly infill us. Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us and he fulfills that promise with the gift of the Holy Spirit in us and coming upon us. God told Gideon, if you're afraid to go, uh, excuse me, if you're afraid, then go. He didn't tell him to repent of his fear. He didn't tell him to get counseling for his fear. He told Gideon to do something that almost seemed more fear-filled. Go with only one other Israelite towards the enemy instead of the army of 300. It's, it's kind of an interesting, you wonder what's on God's mind sometimes. He says, now Gideon, if you're afraid to, to go down and get the victory to, with your army, how about you and Pura go down alone? And uh, you know, if you're Gideon, you might think, hey, I'm not quite as afraid as I thought I was because my strategy was to send 300 guys ahead of me and bring up the rear. Because uh, there's some mopping up that needs to be. But God says, no, I want, you know, if you're going to be afraid, let's deal with it. Go down to the enemy camp and, and I will alleviate your fears. 
Verse 11. You shall hear what they shall say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Torah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Gideon was going to receive intel about the enemy that would serve to enlighten him and strengthen him. We have a fierce, malevolent enemy in Satan. He's not alone in his opposition to us, but is aided by an army of fallen angels. He's the God of this world, and he designs the world system in a way to defeat us and to destroy us. As a Christian, you have an idea that there's something wrong with the world, do you not? The philosophies of the world, the theories of the world, the whole flow of world events. Some of the things that are happening in our world, you, can, you have to step back and say, you know, that, that, doesn't, that defies rational, logical explanation. That rational, logical people would think that way and act that way. This is demonic. This is supernatural. There's something else going on. And that something else is that Satan is the god of this world and he designs a system that is contrary to God's uh, will. And did I mention that even though we're saved and born again... We still have the flesh to contend with. We find within ourselves impulses and propensities to satisfy our appetites in sinful ways. So much that we're battling inside of ourselves all the time. Wanting to do things and not doing them and not wanting to do other things but doing them. The intel we receive from reading the Bible is perfect and it ought to strengthen us. For example, we're told that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. That's that's a pretty good strategy. That's like watching game film. You know, if you're into sports and, and you're watching the film, you say, now, they, they have a weakness here in this area, so we're going to stack up over here and beat them at that. And so we read the Bible, and, and God says, all you need to do is resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, I can do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been clothed by the Holy Spirit in a spiritual armor that can easily withstand the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, and the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And so right at the moment I say to you, we're overwhelmed by an incalculable number of demons and, and spirits and fallen angels who are supernaturally empowered to destroy you, who are malevolent and hateful murderers and liars. You also know that you've been clothed with the armor of God. And you can stand against any of their onslaught. Then we're told that we've been crucified with, that we've died with, and raised with Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, so that we're dead to sin, and we can thereby yield to the indwelling Holy Spirit and not our flesh. And so that struggle inside of me, the flesh versus the Spirit, can always be won by yielding to the Spirit. It isn't always won, because I still yield to the flesh. But when I do that, that's a choice I make. To not believe God, that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Looking forward, we see the final incarceration of the devil and his followers, both angelic and human. We see a new earth and new heavens. We see a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, that great golden city within which Jesus is building our eternal mansions. I guess what I'm saying here is that God has given us insight into the future way better than what he did for Gideon. We may not see tomorrow's future. We may not see the good works God has planned for us to discover tomorrow and the next day. But we see our ultimate future with its sure promise we will be completed, finished, transformed, and safe in eternity. One commentator said, 
God prepares us for good works. He prepares good works for us to perform, and then he rewards us when we perform them. That is the Christian life. I don't know what I always think the Christian life is. I sometimes, sometimes get trapped in an understanding that it's works, that I read the Bible and it's telling me things I must do, almost like a taskmaster, and I keep falling short. But in reality, God says, I have prepared you as a supernatural spiritual being filled with the Holy Spirit for good works. You are ready to perform good works in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I have good works prepared beforehand for you to discover. And once you do that, all in my power, all by the Holy Spirit, I will reward you for it, even though it was really me. What's our part? We just have to go down to the enemy camp with the intel that we have, stand and watch the victory that God has won for us. A second, the good works God has prepared for you, they cannot fail if performed in his strength. Comparing God to a contractor is somewhat dicey in that contractors have such a terrible reputation. A few bad ones seem to spoil it for all the rest. Almost everyone who has ever hired contractors can tell a horror story. In fact, you love having a worse story than the next guy. Oh, let me tell you. I've got some myself. I'm not going to tell you them. But there was that time it took us nine months to get into our house because of the contractor. But that's for another time. I don't need to point out that God is not like that. Regardless of our impatience with him, he's never late to the job site. His projects are finished on schedule. We can't always see it, but what he is building is always perfectly crafted. And as we've said repeatedly, it will absolutely come to completion in eternity. None of you are going to look at me and say, what happened? Uh, God didn't have enough time to finish me. I'm just, you know, half spiritual and half... Everybody's going to be complete when we get there. Gideon overheard the good work he was about to perform. Verse 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. The Midianites were the main oppressors, but these others took advantage. Doesn't it seem that when you're in a trial, everything starts going wrong and everything's against you? You, you kind of develop a mindset that when it rains, it pours. Satan is definitely a kick-you-while-you're-down fighter. We keep getting clues to how overwhelming the odds were against Gideon. It was the Midianites. That was bad enough, but many others came with them. Together, their number was like a locust plague on the land. They were like the grains of sand on a beach. And they had camels, and that's not just an observation. Camels were war animals. By that I mean they were used in battle. Riding their camels, the enemies of Israel would crush them. Camels are mean, nasty. Ugh. I mean, you might go out to the, you know, drive through nativity and see camels out there and think, oh, how cute, but don't get near those things. They're war beasts. I pointed out before in our studies in Judges, but we need to realize that as Christians, we are hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned by supernatural enemies we face alone. But with the Lord, we are a majority. Now, uh, this is one reason it's so important to be in fellowship with other believers. Because we draw strength from one another and we hear the word taught and go out to face this battle Uh, with a renewed energy. Verse 13, And when Gideon had come, 
there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Bread made from barley grain isn't something to copy as if it was some secret nutritional component to a new fad diet derived from the Bible. Now, I have no knowledge of any of you being involved in anything like this, so I'm going to say this with clarity. There are always people who find recipes in the Bible for the way God wants you to eat. My favorite one, my all-time favorite one, comes from the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has a certain kind of bread that he ate. And in fact, there's even a company called Ezekiel Bread. They must not have read the entire context of that passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is in exile. He has hardly anything to make bread with. And he has hardly anything to cook bread over. And so he ends up cooking bread over human dung. I'm telling you, that is not the diet that God has for you. <laughs> the Ezekiel diet is the dung diet, if you want to get right down to it. And so this is, this is not God saying, I, Israel is my barley loaf. And if you want to really be spiritual, you'll only eat barley bread. That's not it at all. It was often actually the food of animals. They were eating this way because they were impoverished. Remember when God sent them into the promised land, what did he say? It's flowing with what? Milk and honey. I mean, God wanted them to chow down in the promised land, not to limit themselves to barley bread. I mean, it's not even sourdough. So get away from that thinking. This is all they had left to eat after the Midianites were finished devouring their crops. The barley bread represents Israel at its lowest point. The tent in the dream referred to the nomadic Midianites as a whole. What destroyed the tent? Not a hurricane, not a cyclone, not an earthquake or a tornado or a brush fire or a plague or a rock slide or a bolt of lightning or a tidal wave or an avalanche. Not even an angel. It was a barley loaf and not a big oversized loaf either. It wasn't one of these... What is that gigantic thing coming down from heaven? It's a huge barley loaf the size of a tree. No, it, think of a bagel. This is something like, if we were writing this story today, we would say a bagel rolled into the camp of the Midianites and destroyed the entire camp, a kosher bagel. You think the Midianites would crack up at this. Can you imagine this guy say, hey, I had a dream last night. A barley loaf destroyed us. Yeah, you had a little bit too much barley wine before bed last night. But instead, verse 14, his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Gideon finds out inextricably that the entire Midianite camp is afraid of him. I don't even know how they know who he is. And yet this guy says, that bagel is the sword of Gideon. Ever since the exodus from Egypt, Israel's enemies were afraid of Israel's God. When Joshua sent spies to reconnoiter Jericho, Rahab told him this. I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. 
And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. In Deuteronomy, the uh, Israelites were promised that God would go before them as a hornet, destroying their enemies. Commentators don't know exactly what that means. I think it's a figure for whatever God intended to send against the enemies of Israel. All the plagues in Egypt were, in that sense, the hornet. Reminds me of the military and how they draw pictures and names on the front of their jets. Hey, there's something a lot more powerful than a stinging bee coming your way. (laughs) Death from above is coming to you. And, you know, that kind of a thing. So that's the idea. God says, I'm going to send the hornet ahead of you. One day it's going to be an earthquake. The next day it's going to be a bagel. The next day it's going to be Gideon. But it's coming. And these people were terrified because they saw what God had done to Pharaoh. And then they saw what happened in the wilderness. And then they saw what happened in Jericho. And so they were terrified. They also knew that when Israel disobeyed God, he disciplined them and they didn't have to worry about anything. But they lived in a constant kind of fear of the God of Israel. Do you realize, of course, that your enemies are afraid of the Lord? When Jesus was on the earth, the demons he encountered were terrified of him. In the book of James, we're told demons trembled at his name. William Cowper is credited with the quote, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. Part of our problem believing that our enemies tremble is that so much of this happens in a spiritual realm we cannot see. Let me illustrate and then bring you into the modern times. In the book of 2 Kings, the king of Syria sent a great army out against God's prophet Elisha. His servant was afraid. Here's the story. When the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And the servant said to Elisha, My master, what are we going to do? So Elisha answered, Don't fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Whether it's angels watching over me every move I make or some other thing, greater is he that is in me that is he that is in the world. Now the twist, bringing it forward, is that we live in a different age. We live in a spiritual dispensation when God's strength is revealed most effectively by our weakness. And so we, we tend to sit here and think, okay, how come I'm not striking people blind at work? Well, I think that's self-evident, but that's kind of what we mean when, when, we're not able, when we see these stories. We think, well, Elisha said there were armies around him, and all he had to do was ask that they would be blinded, and God immediately delivered him. Why aren't things, why am I actually suffering and afflicted, and why are people dying? Why are they not being healed? All of that. Well, let me give you a reason. The first martyr in the book of Acts, Stephen. God could easily have, easily have struck his enemies dead. I don't think anybody doubts that. When they arrested Stephen and, and the religious leaders were getting ready to stone him to death illegally, no question God could have killed every one of them. But instead, he chose to have Stephen's face glow like that of an angel. 
and to have Stephen utter that he could see into heaven. Rather than strike his enemies with blindness, he gave them sight, as it were, through his eyes of what was going on in heaven, where he could see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And they killed him. But that story, that history, has resonated down through generations of Christians to this day. And we look at that and we think, oh, to be Stephen, to be the first martyr of the church age, to be received into glory. And then we think that in that story, at the end of that story, kind of as an important footnote, it mentions that there was a young man there by the name of Saul, who later we know as the Apostle Paul. And it's conjectured that that martyrdom of Stephen had a profound effect on his life. In fact, on the road to Damascus, he would be struck blind, would he not, for a time? But he would, be, he would see the Lord Jesus Christ, and the scales would fall off of his eyes. He would go on to be the great apostle Paul, who probably single-handedly could have done what all the apostles did, but God used some other guys too. And so God gets a very different kind of victory in the age in which we live. And you can be happy about it or sad about it. I think normally we're sad. No one likes to suffer. No one likes to see their friends suffer. We prefer the healing. We prefer the miracle. We prefer our enemies be blinded. Maybe. In our heart of hearts, what we really prefer is that our enemies would have their eyes opened. And that's what God wants to do through our lives. And those are the victories that he gives us. Puts us in situations where his strength is made perfect in our weakness so that the enemy's eyes would be opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back to Gideon. What an amazing providence that in a camp of 135,000 men, as numerous as locusts and grains of sand, he went right to the place he could overhear two of them discussing a nightmare. And just at that right moment, whether news spread from this one dream or whether others also dreamed it, the camp of the enemy was terrified. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. I can only wonder if Gideon named his army the Barley Brigade or maybe the Band of Bagels. What do you think? That's what armies do, right? I mean, come on. You get excited. You ride on your shield. Of course, they didn't have shields. They, we're going to find out they had trumpets. We name trumpets, don't we? Didn't Louis Armstrong have a name for his trumpet? Shout it out. Satchmo? Yeah. Was it Louis Armstrong? Was he a trumpet player? <laughs> or am I thinking of Mozart? Anyway, Gideon should not have needed any assurance. He could have simply trusted the word of God, but God condescended in grace to Gideon's lack of faith and to his fear in order to encourage him. I love Gideon. Gideon is becoming my favorite Bible character because I am so much like him. In reality, he's a knucklehead, doubter, faithless kind of guy. And God says, I'm committed to working with you. I'm going to bring you all the way. And you know what? When you get to the end, wow. Now, we've already had tremendous assurances in the completed word of God. We should thus not expect God to show us proof of what he's going to do. We can trust him to accomplish his work in and through us. We have so much more revelation than... Gideon had or the, you realize these Old Testament guys didn't even have the whole Old Testament right he didn't have anything that was beyond he didn't even have he didn't have the book of Judges he was the book of Judges 
They had the law, the first five books of the Bible. Where would you and I be with just the Pentateuch? It's crazy to think about it, considering the entire revelation of God's word and what we understand. So I'm saying this morning that his work done in his power, it simply cannot fail. Our part is to believe and to obey. In the book of Ephesians, where we are described as God's workmanship and where we are told to discover these works that God has ordained, chapter 4 begins with the Apostle Paul saying, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then we have those famous passages about fathers and mothers and children and husbands and wives. And I think what Paul is saying to us is, these are some of the good works that I have before ordained that you would walk in them. Being a husband, being a wife, being a mother. This is our Mother's Day portion of the message. (laughs) And God is telling you, I have before ordained, I have planned out that you would be this person, that you would fulfill this role, father, mother, husband, wife, child. And you are going to discover how to do that as you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I've also, he tells us in Ephesians, given you the Holy Spirit, and he can infill you anytime he wants you. Go on being filled with him. And so a lot of times we think of the work. What work does God want me to discover? What, does he want me to you know, rent a stadium and, and have it filled with people and preach the gospel? Maybe. But mostly he just wants you to be a Christian in the roles that he's called you to employer, employee, those kinds of things, and to believe that, well, this is the good, Lord, this is the good work that you have before ordained, that I would walk in it, and you promised you would strengthen me to do it, and so you know what? God's calling is God's enabling, and when I say I can't do it, that's right. You can't do it, but you're evidently, and I'm evidently not depending on the Holy Spirit in order to do it, because God says I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It isn't so much about what we must do for God as what he can do through us. These are good works he has before ordained that we would discover them and walk in them. Are you indwelt by God the Holy Spirit? You are if you're a believer. It's part of what it means to get saved is that the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and life and he indwells you. If you're not a believer, you're not indwelt by the Spirit. That's the place that you're at today. That's the issue in your life, that my sins have not been forgiven. I still have to account for my own sins, and that's going to go badly. You read about the great white throne judgment at the end of the book of Revelation. All those who have rejected Christ, who have failed to receive Christ, who have chosen to reject Christ, they're going to have to represent themselves and their sins before the bar of God. And there's nothing that can help you at that point. But you can be saved today by God's grace, his free gift of salvation through believing that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead for you that you might live. If you say you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then ask for his constant infilling in order that you might discover and perform the good works that are transforming you from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus.